Tonight, if you have your Bible, this, tonight we're going to do some uh, theology. So now you've got to pay attention and don't let your cell phone go off. Uh, let's look at chapter 12 of Matthew, beginning in verse 18. We're going to kind of go word by word, uh, you know, phrase by phrase, and we're going to go right through a number of verses tonight. The scripture says, this is Matthew 12, beginning verse 18, Behold, now this is God talking, Behold, my servant, he's talking about Jesus, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. Now, Jesus Christ is God's main and greatest servant. He is the supreme servant. He, of course, was different from any other servant that's ever been. His only son, whom he has chosen to redeem the world. Now, there's nobody else that has that uh, duty to do. It's just uh, the Lord Jesus that will do that. The Greek phrase here is, uh, I have chosen. Now, this indicates a firm and determined uh, stance. This is real strong. He says, I have chosen. Uh, this phrase is not used anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only place it's in uh, the scripture anywhere. Um, the father had irrevocably chosen his beloved son to be his divine servant the only one qualified for the task of redemption. He didn't have any sin. He died for our sin. He didn't die for his sin. And, and that's very important. You know, a lot of people, uh, as obvious as that might seem to us who have gone to church most of our life, it's not obvious to other people. When you're talking to somebody about the Lord Jesus, you've got to make that real clear to them, that he's dying for your sin. Not for his. He's taking the punishment that you deserve. You know, when you put it like that, even children uh, can understand it and relate to it. The one who is hated and rejected by the world, that's talking about Jesus. You know, the uh, crowds hated him. The Pharisees hated him. All the religious hierarchy hated him. The Pharisees, the leading group religiously of that day, they all hated him. They thought he was just terrible, including his own people. They hated him. The Jews hated him. The Jews, remember, are the ones that were screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. You remember? Some were for him when he came in on the donkey, but they switched sides. You know, their commitment wasn't very deep. And later they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Well, even though that is the evaluation of people, that is not the evaluation of God. God said, he is beloved by me. And he makes me well pleased. You know, a lot of times in uh, this earth, We'll do something, and a lot of people will uh, get real mad at us. 
and their evaluation is, uh, you know, pretty bad as they think about us. But if we're doing it in the right spirit, if we're doing it with the right motive, if we're doing it because we believe that that's the thing that the Lord would have us to do, whose evaluation are we trying to get? Are we trying to get that person's good evaluation or are we trying to get the Lord's good evaluation? I have been pastoring for a long, long time. I had a man in a church a long time ago, and uh, he couldn't stand me. He just hated me and uh, made it very obvious to everybody and uh, always was saying, you know, uh, bad things about me. And I thought, you know, I've never even said anything to that guy. Well, I mean, he doesn't know me well enough to be that mad at me. And, uh, but he kept it up. And it uh, came out, uh, he was a crook, and uh, he got arrested. And I, you know, I thought, I thought about that a lot in, in my life. Have you had people that are really, really hard on you, and you later found out that their life really was not centered in the Lord? You know, their evaluation of you was very low, but as far as you knew, what you were trying to do would be pleasing to the Father. It would make the Lord smile what you were doing. You know, that happens. That happens along life's way. And we've got to be steadfast in not trying to please the crowd, but to please the Lord and to do the things which will bring honor and glory to our Lord. That's, that's the only judge. You know, you know how they uh, uh, do those things on those programs where they uh, dance or something. They hold up a nine or a ten or something like that. It doesn't matter what they hold up. It matters what God holds up. And if he thinks we're doing a good job, that's the only thing that matters. And, and that, of course, is what's happening here. All the people, and the, even the Jews, even his own people, they're all saying, bad job, bad job. You're doing the wrong thing. You're saying the wrong thing. You're going in the wrong direction. God says, I'm well pleased. He is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At Jesus' baptism, the father declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, you remember at the transfiguration, later on, the Lord said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So, I, you know, that says to me that he was even more pleased later on. You know, he was saying, listen to him. Listen to what he's saying. He's, he's saying the right stuff. Listen to to him. It's not possible for men to be well-pleasing to God unless they've come to him through his son. If you're not coming to him through the son, then you're not pleasing. It's just that simple. If you're not a believer, then, you know, you're out on the highways and byways of life. You're not where you ought to be. Those who are in the flesh, those who are uh, 
in obvious sin, those who are doing the wrong thing with the wrong motive to the wrong people, uh, they're not pleasing to God. They're, they're uh, messing up. All right, let's look at the second part of verse 18. Jesus uh, was uh, here commissioned by the Holy Spirit. Look at uh, 18b. I will put my spirit upon him. This is God speaking about Jesus. I will put my spirit upon him. Now, Isaiah, through Isaiah, God promised that he would put his spirit upon the Messiah in a very unique way, and he certainly did. At the baptism, you remember, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and rested upon him. But that was not when he was indwelt by the Spirit of God. You say, well, I thought that was it. No, that's not it. Unique to all mankind, Jesus was conceived, conceived by the Holy Spirit. You remember that? If John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb, how much more so for Jesus? Yet if Jesus was preexistent, uh, the preexistent Son, eternally one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, in what way could the Spirit have come upon him uh, during his humanity at his baptism? Well, first of all, the coming of the Spirit upon Jesus was a bestowing of power to his human nature. His divine nature was already one with the Spirit. The Spirit indwelt him at his birth and did not require special assistance. That part was fine, but his human nature needed uh, this push, uh, this additional uh, addition of the Spirit in his life. Jesus was fully human, even to the point of being tempted in the same way that you and I are tempted, yet without sinning. He didn't, he didn't sin in response to the temptations as we sometimes do. Second, Jesus required the anointing of the Spirit in order to attest to his royal service as the Messiah. For 30 years, he had lived in obscurity. You, you know that. He was a, a carpenter. He was a little kid, then he was a carpenter. But when his ministry began, he was given a special attestation of authority and approval by his father at his baptism. A prophecy of the Messiah was quoted by Jesus and applied to himself as he taught in the synagogue in Nazareth. You're, this is one of the real powerful moments to me in Jesus' uh, ministry. You know, he says at this uh, juncture, he says, I'm the one. I mean, that's really powerful. Let me, re let me read it to you. Uh, Jesus said at the synagogue in Nazareth, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden. 
to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's in Luke 4, 18 and 19. After he sat down, Jesus turned to the scribes and the Pharisees and said this. I think, I think this is one of the most powerful lines in the whole Bible. Jesus turned to those guys and said, Today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the one. I am the Messiah. He's making it real clear here. As the perfect submissive servant, Jesus functioned not only in the Father's will and by the Father's commendation, but in the power of the Father's Spirit, the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit was upon him, in him, working through him in all that he did and all that he said. All right, let's look at the last part of verse 18. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Have you ever felt like you were a part of an oppressed group? Have you ever, have you ever felt that? Maybe you moved into a neighborhood and you were the only one that was different from everybody else. When I was a little kid, uh, my dad worked for the Tennessee Valley Authority, and we moved to Chattanooga. Um, and we moved on a street, and everybody on that street was Catholic, except us. And they all went to the school that was about a mile away, and I went to a school that was about 10 miles away. And they all, you know, would talk about all the stuff that was going on at school and going on at church. And I was kind of over here. You know, I didn't know anything about any of that. I wasn't involved in any of that. I felt like I was uh, kind of an outsider. And these were all kids my age. And, of course, I knew them all. We played on some ball teams together and stuff like that. But, you know, really, there was a difference. They were over there and I was over here. Well, uh, Isaiah prophesied that the Lord's beloved servant, that's talking about Jesus, would proclaim a message of truth and justice even to the Gentiles. Now, a lot of people didn't like that. The Jews hated that. They hated it. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Essenes, they hated that. And, and that is what Jesus did. Contrary to the thinking and the expectation of all the Jews, he had an open, strong ministry with the Gentiles. The Messiah was to be the redeemer of the whole world, not just of Israel. The Jews never thought of that. They never could conceive of that. That was horrible to their mind. They just, I mean, that was just something they couldn't even imagine, that they would be in the same boat with the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they thought, were horrible, terrible uh, people, and they didn't want anything to do with them. Israel was, in fact, to be the channel of God's grace to the rest of the world. That's true. They were very special, and they are still very special. 
The first woman to whom Jesus revealed his messiahship was a Samaritan, a half-Jew and half-Gentile woman in John 4, 6, 4, 26. Early in his ministry, Jesus had Gentile followers. You remember that from Idumea, from Transjordan, from the region around Tyre and Sidon. He had a lot of people that followed him that were not Jews. They were in the crowd, so to speak. But the Jews, of course, wherever they were, they always thought they were in charge and they were the main people. They were the most important people. They were the richest people. They were the smartest people. They knew the scripture the best. You know, that was always their attitude. They were filled with pride. Of the Gentile centurion whose servant was healed, Jesus said this. This should have been a clue. Jesus said to that guy, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now that is a telling, telling statement. This guy had the greatest faith that Jesus had seen. But the Jews resented Jesus giving any attention at all to the Gentiles and especially to him treating them equally with the Jews. And the idea of the Messiah coming to redeem Gentiles was anathema to them. They thought that was the worst possible thing that could ever happen. They got to go to uh, the next world with these people. They didn't want to hear that. Almost no truth of the gospel was as hard for the Jews to accept as the truth that salvation and fellowship with God were for Gentiles as well as for Jews. But God's plan for redemption always included, this from the beginning of mankind, it always included the Gentiles. You know, we like to think that we're special. Uh, I have some uh, people that I've known in my life. Um, I, I've known some special people. I, I really have. Mary Kay, you know Mary Kay Ash, the cosmetic lady, she's a good friend of mine. Uh, she told me one time that she had to give away about $750,000 a year because of tax reasons. She had to give that away. I mean... You know, when you're doing that, you are kind of special. You're different, you know, from everybody. You're different in some ways, but you're just like everybody in some other ways. And that's what the Jews forgot. They thought they were different from everybody else because they were the favorite of God and nobody could hold a candle to them in any way. That's what they thought. And, of course, they were wrong. Well, the Messiah was to proclaim justice and deliverance from sin to the Gentiles just as to the Jews. All right, let's look at verse 19. Uh, this, this verse talks about the meekness of our Lord. Now, that isn't what the Jews wanted. That isn't what anybody wanted. They wanted somebody to come in and deliver them from the Romans. They wanted a warrior. That's what they wanted. They wanted a great big strong guy with a sword in his hand and, and a destiny of uh, defeating the Romans on the battlefield of life. That's what they wanted. And that's not what Jesus did. He did just the opposite. He came in meekness. 
Now, that's hard for us to, to get, you know. We like uh, the John Wayne kind of people that beat up the bad guys and shoot them. You know, that's really what we want. We want John Wayne kind of people. And, uh, you know, that, that isn't what Jesus did. It says he will not quarrel, talking about Jesus. He will not quarrel. He will not cry out. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He was a meek person. Of course, there was that day when he threw him out of the temple. That, he was not meek that day. To quarrel carries the idea of wrangling, hassling, screaming out. To cry out means to shout, means to scream. The term was sometimes used of a dog's barking or a raven's uh, squawking. Jesus did not come to harangue anybody. Every once in a while in your life, now think, don't raise your hand or anything. Every once in a while in your life, did you just get enough of somebody and you just told them off? Did you ever do that? Bill's saying he did. He's nodding his head. You know, I think every one of us in here have done that. At some point in our life, we've had about enough from somebody and we just told them off. I don't mean cuss them out or anything. I just kind of told them how it was. Well, Jesus never did that. You know, I mean, he, he confronted the scribes and Pharisees with their uh, wrong uh, theology, and it, sometimes he did it forcefully, but he didn't cuss them out or something like that. He just tried to correct the places where they were wrong. Um. Uh, he was never like a rabble-rousing zealot who inflames his hearers by appealing to their emotions and their prejudices. He was always a person of dignity and control. Don't we wish we could say that? He never organized a mob. Now, you, th you think of all the New Testament. You've read the New Testament through. Think of all the things. He never organized a mob. He never did that. He never resorted to trickery. He didn't, have to, he didn't have to trick anybody about anything. He never lied. He never schemed as his opponents routinely did against him. They did it, but he didn't respond in that way. He was the way of gentleness and meekness and lowliness. Even though he was the Son of God, even though he was the Messiah, even though he was the rightful king of kings, Jesus never tried to secure a hearing. He never went out in the street and said, okay, everybody out here, everybody come over here and sit down and listen to me. He never did that. He never uh, tried to get a following of political power. He could have done that, but he never did. He never used physical force except that time uh, in the temple. He never used emotional agitation. He was meek. He just didn't do it that way. As Solomon reminds us, the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting among, a shouting of a ruler among fools. And that's true. All right, let's look at the last part of verse 20, the first part of verse 20. 
12.20, first part. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out. In ancient times, a reed was used for a lot of things. There were a lot of reeds, and so obviously the people tried to use them in whatever way they could. Uh, Once a reed was bent or battered, it wasn't any good for anything, nobody thought, and so they just throw it away. The shepherd would often take a reed and they would cut out a piece or so or make indentions. I don't know how they did it. But they would make a flute-like instrument out of the reed. And they would play soft music to do something during their hours out on the hillside with the sheep. And the sheep liked it. It would calm them and make them feel like everything was okay. And they would sit down, lay down, go to sleep. When the reed became soft or cracked, it was no longer any good to make music, and the shepherd would break it and throw it away. When the lamp burned down to the end of the wick, it would only smolder and smoke without really giving off any light. Since such a smoldering wick was useless, it was put out and thrown away. No need to keep that anymore. It wasn't any good for anything. Just like a broken reed. They would throw it away. Well, in this scripture, the broken reed, the smoldering wick, represent people whose lives are broken and worn out. That's like some of us, isn't it? Some of us are broken. We have physical impairments. Some of us are are worn out. We're tired. We've been tired, perhaps, for a long time. We can't do a whole lot of things in a day's time. The battered reed, the smoldering wick, represent people whose lives are broken and worn out, ready to be discarded and replaced by the world. Because they no longer can make music, like the reed could, or give light like the wick used to do, society cast them off as weak and helpless. They cast them off as the suffering and the burden. Those were the kind of people that the Romans just ignored. They just pretended like they weren't there. They just went ahead and did whatever they were doing, just paid no attention to them. And the Pharisees despised them as worthless. They thought, well, these people aren't any good for anything, so I'm not going to take any time with them. One of the most obvious legacies in the fall of man is man's natural tendency to destroy things. Do you like to destroy things? When I was a kid, I loved to tear up boxes, get big cardboard boxes, tear them up. That was a lot of fun. I'd hit them with a bat until they were flat on the ground. Adults devour and undercut each other in business. You've, I'm sure, had that happen to you at some point. You've had that happen to you in society. You've had that happen to you in politics. And maybe you've had that happen to you in your family. A brother or a sister, a cousin, aunt or uncle, somebody really mistreated you, really took advantage of you. The nature of sinful man is to destroy. But the nature of our holy God is to restore. The Lord does not break off or put out 
even the least of those who come to him. Isn't that a wonderful promise? He doesn't break us or put us out. He gives dire warning to those who would do so. You know this passage well, I'm sure. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe in me to stumble, Jesus said, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's the better thing that could happen to them. You know, that's strong. That's what ISIS is doing right now. They're cutting off people's heads. They're killing people. They're shooting them. They're uh, torturing people, raping women, cutting off arms and legs and all sorts of things. They're doing all that. It would be better for them if they had had a, a, a big weight tied around their neck and thrown into the sea than to do that. In the hands of the Savior, the battered reed is not discarded. It's restored. And the smoking wick is not put out. It's rekindled. Jesus was consummating the victory in this last text I want to read. This this is uh, really my favorite tonight. Let me, let me lead up to it with uh, the first part of verse 20. A battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Ultimately, right will win. It seems today like wrong is winning a lot, doesn't it? Ultimately... Right will win because the Savior is in charge. The Savior is going to recognize and claim his own. Now, we might be dead, but he's going to take us, and we're going to go to glory, and we're going to be victorious in glory forever and ever. Amen. Ultimately, right will win. In spite of oppression and persecution and rejection, Jesus is destined to be victorious as he leads justice to victory. He will bring with him all that belong to him and who have themselves been oppressed, persecuted, and rejected by the world when Christ takes his rightful place as Lord and King. Justice, Amos said, will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I'm going to conclude tonight with something I probably shouldn't do. But I want to, uh, you, you know, singers a lot of times get up when they're going to sing and they say, now listen to the words. I always want to say, well, did you think we weren't going to listen to the words? Well, tonight I want you to listen to the words. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. Uh, Jim, why don't you come up here and do this? You'd do this better than I would. You can do this. I know you can do it. I should have warned you about this. The, don't sing it. Just say it. This is the, this is the, you know, this is the song. 
But just, just read those words and then read those. That's very powerful. The words are so significant. Yeah, just start right there and, and just, you know, I, I lost the tune as I was talking about it. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, chords that were broken will vibrate once more. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. Amen. You know, the words are important. And that's exactly what's going to happen. He's going to be the victor. Jesus will save. Tonight, if you're here and there's maybe a decision for Christ that you'd like to make, we want you to make it. A lady told me this morning she is going to join the church. And I was so happy to hear that. Uh, Tonight, if you're here, you've been thinking about it, praying about it. Come on and do it. Uh, This would be a great time to honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to sing. Brother, lead us. Let's all stand, please.